Follow What Was The Score podcast on Twitter at WWTS underscore podcast and follow us on YouTube too at the same name, What Was The Score podcast, the sports history podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, and Jin W, and welcome back to What Was The Score, the sports history podcast. It's me, Jamie, and today I've got a great one for you. I'm going to be opening up the GOAT debate. I'm going to be talking about what it means to be the greatest of all time, what to consider when we compare errors, and then I'm going to go through a few sports at the end and kind of say who I think is, is the greatest in that sport, give a reason why, based on the theory that I talk about in the first part of the pod. This is a really great one. I know you'll enjoy it. Have a good day as always, and enjoy the show. The GOAT, the greatest of all time. It's a topic that's always been about and will always be about forever because there's no one answer. You can make a case for multiple athletes in any sport. However, the debate often falls victim of recency bias and we end up selecting an athlete from the last 30 years or so, partially due to our exposure to the game, partially due to a lack of understanding of the sport of yesteryear. This begs the question, how do we compare errors? There are many factors that influence an athlete's ability to perform, the technology and equipment of the time, the rules of the game, their physicality and social factors to name but a few, meaning that decade to decade, and in some cases year to year, it's unfair to directly compare sports people that are not direct contemporaries due to the dynamic nature of sport and physical performance. Before I go into who I believe the greatest are in their respective fields, I want to talk to you about why it is so difficult to compare eras and how we should define the greatest. So, an analogy that we can use is like boxing weight classes. Lomachenko would never fight Wilder. Whilst there isn't much between them when it comes to ability in their weight class, everyone knows Wilder isn't the best technical boxer, and Lomachenko is, is a fantastic technical boxer. Well, Lomachenko is, is better than is he not? Well, the size and reach of Wilder means that Wilder would mop the floor with him. That's why Lomachenko would never fight him. Okay? This is this is out of his control. It's not Lomachenko's fault that he, he's a little man. It's not uh, Wilder's fault that he was a, he's a big man in a big body. Right? Due to factors out of their control, they're not as good as one another when it comes to their ability to fight, technically, if they were to have a scrap. And similar with players in different eras, due to factors out of their control, they're not as good as the players of today. So if you take the physical conditioning and requirements of any sport today, right, athletes of the 60s probably wouldn't be able to compete. Compare George Best and Mohamed Salah, okay? Both insanely talented five foot nine wingers who dribbled a football exceptionally. However, compare them physically. Best never looked like the best footballer in the world physically. He looked quite regular. He didn't weren't particularly defined. He didn't particularly have a six pack. He weren't particularly cut. Whereas Mo Salah looks distinctly defined and chiselled. Now, that, that's a great difference. That's a great difference. And it's not particularly George Best's fault. 
It's, it's not a fault of Bess nor an achievement of Salah, for today's athletes have a greater access and understanding of dietary needs, training methods, and injury, injury prevention. This is like the boxing analogy, because it's not an athlete's fault if they're born into a 5'7 frame and can't put size on, nor if they're born into a 6'5 frame and develop muscle easily. Likewise, it's not an athlete's fault if they're born into the 60s with the technologies of the time for preserving their body. Moreover, some sport has drastic differences in technology of the playing equipment that increases an athlete's performance. For this example, I should use the analogy of a set of golf clubs. A modern day PGA Pro can drive the ball about 330, 330 yards on average. Uh, roughly independent, obviously. However, their 7 iron will only let them go about 200, 220 if you're Roy McElroy. So let's say hypothetically that the athletes of the past didn't have access to the driver, freeward, fiveward, and therefore their performance is limited. Jack Nicholas and Gary Player, two of the greatest golfers of all time, they played in an age where their drivers didn't allow them to hit 400 yards like Bryson DeChambeau and, and Justin Thomas today. Jack Nicholas cranked a, a 341-year uh, yard blast to win the PGA Championship's long drive competition in 1963. When he was 18, he and Arnold Palmer, another one of the greatest, drove the green on a 330-yard par 4 at Athens, Ohio, CC, a story Nicholas shared at, at Palmer's memorial service. Today, such drives are routine. Now, of course, the advances in physiotherapy and nutrition do come into play here, with Bryson DeChambeau recently hitting the ball further because, well, he's gotten the weights and he's put on size. However, it doesn't change what happens in the factories. Every day, the likes of Callaway, TaylorMade, and you know, Ping, Mizuno, they're all looking for ways to get extra yards out of their equipment, and equipment has a distinct impact on an athlete's ability to perform. In some sports, this is more prominent than others, of course. Golf, racket sport, motorsport are good examples where one can only be as good as their equipment to an extent. You know, motorsport to the extreme, of course. This year's cars are better than the cars five years ago by quite literally miles. But, you know, compare the cars to the 60s. On the other hand, sports such as athletics, most ball sports and performing arts see a weaker correlation between performance and equipment. Although there is no doubt that there's still a positive correlation there. And again, it's not the fault of the athlete nor a knock of the, on their ability that they were born into an era where the equipment could only, quite literally in golf sense, get you so far. A third factor, and a third analogy for you, is that of my rules or your rules. So as a kid, I'm all sure we played a game like It or Tag, um, and some people play it where there's no home. Some play it where there's a time restriction on home. Some players play freeze tag, and you know each of these different rules and caveats favour different types of players, right? For example, let's take basketball. Let's look at Pete Maravich and Stephen Curry. And for those who aren't aware, they are both elite shooters. Stephen Curry plays now. Pete Maravich played in the 70s. Okay. However, Maravich played in an era that didn't didn't really reward shooting as much because there wasn't a three-point line until 1979. 
a shot from 3 feet away or 30 feet away were worth the same amount of points, giving little incentive to not only taking those shots, but becoming an excellent shooter. Additionally, sports go through waves of different emphases, be it defending, attacking, fast pace, slow pace, allowing some players to thrive and leaving others to fall victim. The NBA of today favours fast play and shooting, whereas as recent as the 2000s, the emphasis was defence, slowing play down and post play. You know, you only have to look at some of the scoring patterns. In the early 2000s, you had playoff games finishing, you know, 74 to 70, and, and now you're getting regular season games where they're putting up, you know, 130 to 110. Of course, some talents transcend this. Jordan could probably play in any era, same with LeBron James or Shaquille O'Neal. Yet some careers are made or ended overnight due to this phenomenon of the rules changing. Let's take Roy Hibbert. Roy Hibbert was a very good centre, seven foot one for the Pacers in the early 2010s on that really good Pacers team. However, when centres began shooting, and you asked Hibbert to guard them 20 feet away from the basket, you lost his paint presence, probably his, his greatest asset, and he would fall into every switch and get exposed. Just couldn't move side to side, but he's a big guy. Overnight, his stock crashed. You couldn't have him on the floor. He was a liability. If we had to play by Hibbert's rules, he'd be in the Hall of Fame, if you get the analogy. You know, if he said, you know, everything's going to go through the post, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. But if we are to play by... You know, for contrast, Carl Anthony Towns' rules, who's the greatest shooting big man of all time, and I won't hear anything else. Hibbert wouldn't be able to keep up, and we saw that. We saw that average centres that could shoot were taking, you know, a, an all-star centre out of the equation. Therefore, criticising a player of the past for their lack of an ability in a prominent skill today is ridiculous. Because if they were playing today, they would have practised said skills. If you put Roy Hibbert in the league now, knowing what we know now about basketball, Roy Hibbert would be getting 500 trees a day up. His trainers would make him. Okay? So some players fall victim not only to the way that we view sports now. You know, we look at Michael Jordan and we go, well, Jordan can't hit three. Okay, yeah, to an extent that's true. But do you not think if there was an emphasis on three-point shooting, Jordan would practice it? Especially knowing what we know about Jordan. Let's say... You know, he, he would practice it. I, I, I don't even if the, I don't have to go on with that. So to criticise a player for not being good at a certain skill when that wasn't the emphasis, that's ridiculous. So that's something else that we have to consider when we're comparing players of the past. And a final paradigm through which we can and must consider comparing errors is, is society. Now this is a broad term and indeed a broad topic. However. Each error has a a distinct factor perpetuated by society that can help or hinder an athlete's resume. Now, what do I mean by that? Babe Ruth, arguably the greatest baseball player of all time, he played in a time where black players weren't allowed to play in the MLB. Bill Russell, 11 championships. He played in an eight-team league. The NBA now has 30 teams. Modern day footballers are viewed through the microscope of expected goals and advanced analytics. Whereas back then it was the eye test. It was the eye test and, you know, how many goals are they conceding? How many goals are they scoring? However, every sports person 
also has a sewn place into the tapestry of their sport. And certain athletes have a broader and more vibrant stitches, and that is important too. Outside of their ability to perform on a nightly basis, what defines the greatest? How can we compare a goal shooter and a wing attack in netball? For sports that are more quantitative, it's a hard word to say, <laughs> where performance is judged more on the number at the end, like athletics, like sprinting, do we value the athlete who holds the world record but only ever posted that number once? Let's say, for instance, athlete A ran a 9.6 seconds 100 meter. Okay? But he, outside of that run, he never got over 10 minutes. Okay? Or under 10 minutes, rather. Is he the greatest? Or is someone who run 9.61 100 times the greatest? They're not the world record holder. They're not technically the greatest. But there is that prolonged greatest greatness. Yes, the athlete in the first example technically had a higher peak. But the second athlete had a prolonged greatness. And probably won many, many competitions if he's running that fast. For more qualitative sports like football, do we value Shearer's almost minimalist poaching and Premier League goal record critically? Or Rooney's more complete forward style of play? We saw him move backwards into the midfield later on in his career. And that's a comparison of players in a very similar position, both forwards. If we've demonstrated one thing here in the first portion of the talk, it's that the greatest is hugely subjective, with every sport having multiple athletes that you can make a serious case for. And in fact, maybe it's a wiser decision to regard the greatest at every position or the greatest in every era. Despite all of this, <laughs> I'm going to go through a few prominent sports and give my opinion, kind of using the theory that we've just talked about to, to get to the, that opinion, uh, to give my opinion on who the GOAT is. Okay, so now I can't cover every sport and I know I'll offend people by missing their favourite sport, let alone picking a player they disagree with. Nonetheless, I'm going to talk about a few big sports in an order that makes sense with regards to what we've just been talking about. Ice hockey. Wayne Gretzky. I think it's appropriate to start with the sport with possibly the easiest answer. The NHL itself has come forward and crowned Gretzky as the greatest, and here's why. In a career spanning from 1979 to 1999, he has the most points ever. He has the most assists ever. Gretzky is the only NHL player to score more than 200 points in a season. He did it four times. 14 consecutive seasons. Another record. Gretzky totaled 100 points. 40 regular season records, 6 all-star records, 15 playoff records, Hockey Hall of Fame and included in the IIHF Centennial All-Star Team. All of this at a time where skates didn't hold a candle to the skates of today. In a time where sticks couldn't control the puck nearly as well, they, they weren't curved I don't believe. And standing at the fair, but by no means tall, 6 foot. Gretzky is the face of hockey in a way that Tony Hawk is the face of skateboarding. If you know one athlete from that sport, it's them. For his dominance over hockey in a time of big hits and poor equipment too, Gretzky is, and probably always will be, the greatest hockey player of all time. 
Golf. Tiger Woods. Firstly, no. Woods at 14 does not have as many as Nicholas at 18 when we're talking about majors. However, if number of majors defines the greatest of all time, why is there any debate? Surely it should just be list them all up, one through a hundred, there you go. Well, it's because there's clearly other factors in what defines greatness. We, especially with golf, we must consider the golfer's total career accomplishments, their best seasons, tournaments, overall impact on the game. Firstly, Woods gets the seal of approval from none other than Jack Nicklaus himself, who admitted to Tom Watson that Woods is, and I quote, the best. Secondly, Woods competed in easily the deepest, most talented era in golf history, racking up achievements and wins like nobody's business and dominating his peers. I believe he is the only player to win a major, or win a tournament, sorry, by 11 strokes or more. He did it four times. He once won by 19. 19 strokes. That's ridiculous. So, what are these achievements? Woods leads all active golfers in career major wins and career PGA Tour wins. He is the youngest player to achieve the career Grand Slam, and the second golfer, after Nicholas, to have achieved the career Grand Slam three times. Woods has 18 World Golf Championships. He was also part of the American winning team for the 1999 Ryder, uh, Ryder Cup. Woods was so dominant People thought he was actually bad for the game of golf, and courses went about tiger-proofing, adding yardage to their tees, which Tiger, he said, do it, that won't stop me winning. Not sold? Here's a short selection of his achievements, they are all unbeaten records. PGA Player of the Year, 11 times. Tour Player of the Year, 11 times. 82 PGA Tour events, tied with Sam Smead. Money Leader, nine times. Varden Trophy, nine times. Byron Russell Award. Uh, Byron Nelson. I don't know why I got Byron. Byron Russell played basketball. <sighs> I'm doing well. Byron Nelson Award, nine times. All during, as I said, the most talented era of golf. On top of this, a red Nike t-shirt. Turtleneck. Polo. It's in the wardrobe of every golfer. I know I have one. Thanks to a certain... Eldrick Woods. Tiger's dominance over the game and the culture that means he is the goat of golf for me and many other people. Tennis. Serena Williams. What makes the mo- this moniker of goat so remarkable f- for Serena is, like Tiger, she's still playing. However, unlike Tiger, Serena is still largely competitive for big titles majors. One of the strongest and most powerful women to ever play the game, Serena Williams has certainly left her mark on tennis. Together, Serena and her sister Venus have been a dominant force in tennis since the late 90s. Together they've won 12, uh, 14, sorry, I'm selling them short, 14 Grand Slam doubles titles, with 23 Grand Slam singles titles, including the 2017 Australian Open. Serena now owns the Open Era record for Grand Slam singles titles by a tennis player, male or female. Serena's game has certainly withstood the test of time and competition, 
Her Grand Slam titles have come over an 18-year period, starting in 99, with her latest victory coming, as I say, in the 2017 Australian Open. Out of competitive tennis for most of 2017 while pregnant, Serena has now reached four Grand Slam finals without securing that coveted 24th title. Making it to 2018 and 19 Wimbledon and US Open finals was certainly a step in the right direction. But why am I telling you this? This is meant to be her achievements, not her shortcomings. She's been playing since 99. She turns 40 this year. This woman's going to be winning 24, 25, 26. This is incredible. We've never really seen anything like this in tennis before. Of course, you could look at Federer. But what Serena Williams has done and the way that she's transformed the game for women is incredible. What makes Serena so impressive, if we're trying to compare errors, is that her physique and power is unmatched and timeless. Whilst she isn't a genetic anomaly. She isn't a a genetic anomaly. She isn't six foot four. And huge, do you know what I mean? That being said, place her in the 60s with the same opportunity for black athletes, and she's dominating the competition. Again, if she was born in the 50s, though, in the, in the timeline that we're familiar with, then tennis may have been robbed of its greater, greatest ever athlete due to the discrimination in the United States and across the world. Basketball. Michael Jordan. Now, now I feel disrespectful because I'm recording this on Michael Jordan's birthday. But here's a debate. Jordan or the bronze? The bronze longevity and consistency against Jordan's and any other athlete bar Tom Brady is superior. The bronze all-around game and career and what he did with those Cavaliers teams surpasses Jordan's. When all is said and done, maybe it will be LeBron. However, six rings... Six trips to the finals, six finals MVPs. Defensive player of the year as a guard. The highest peak of a basketball player ever. Moreover, Jordan's cultural impact is second to none. The shoes, the moves, the dynasty. I've seen people that don't like basketball wearing Jordans. Actively disliking basketball wearing Jordans. Actively disliking basketball wearing Jordan jerseys. Jordan became a global icon and a global brand during his peak in the NBA. One who was renowned around the world for his exploits, and one who helped the NBA reach new, previously unreached levels of popularity, building on Bird and Johnson in the 80s. For proof of Jordan's outreach, we need look no further than average ratings per regular season games on broadcast networks. During Jordan's final three seasons of its of his prime, the NBA averaged a record 5.0 average rating, 95-96, a 4.7, 96-97, and a 4.8, 97-98. After 98-99, the NBA never reached an average rating of even a 4.0 again. Just for comparison's sake, the average rating in 2018-19, have a guess? 2.2. Less than half of the averages during Jordan's finals balls years. And that's without even discussing Jordan's popularity overseas, where he became the most popular sports figure for a long stretch of time. Now for basketball, there's a lot of players that you could consider. The case against Russell, 
and his 11 championships is the size of the league. Eight teams, as they say. Moreover, whilst being an elite rebounder, his numbers were inflated by the poor shooting of the 60s. The case against Kobe, he's a diet Jordan. Everything Kobe did, Jordan did just that little bit better. The case against LeBron, mainly, is his finals record. He's got four rings from nine, ten appearances. Jordan's nickname is The Goat. He got it for a reason. Football, and this will rub people up the wrong way. Mark Nob, no, Diego Maradona. This is probably the hottest debate with the most right answers. If you want to say any of Pele, Messi, Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, Beckenbauer, Moore, Cruyff, I wouldn't argue. But a key factor for football is we often believe an attacking player is the GOAT. From that list, we've got Pele, Messi, Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo and Cruyff as attacking-minded players. Why is that? Simply, it's easy to quantify goals, goals win games and attacking play is sexy. If you remember one moment from Giovanni Van Bronckhorst's illustrious career as a midfielder and a left-back, I bet it's scoring that screamer against Uruguay in the 2010 World Cup. Or John Terry, one of the greatest defenders ever. Everyone remembers him slipping taking that penalty in Moscow against United, an attacking play, mind you. Therefore, we can kind of intensify Moore and Beckenbauer's case, as we have to understand that not every goal is a good goal, You know, I I played kids football, I scored some awful goals in training, I went a good football player. Every goal is not a good goal representative of one's ability, and that good defending stops good goals. And that cannot be understated. You know, think of many long-range goals. They have nothing to do with the quality of defending. If you're shooting from 30 yards out, more often than not, you're being let to shoot. Additionally, to prove this point of people favouring attacking play... Stanley Matthews, George Best and Paul Gascoigne are regarded as some of the greatest of their errors due to their ability to dazzle fans by dribbling the football. The epitome of attractive football. And maybe something that we overvalue? You know, Trent Alexander-Arnold, current uh, revolutioniser in the fullback position, he summarises our prejudices to certain play when he says, no one wants to grow up and be a Gary Neville. You know, Gary Neville was an exceptional player. An exceptional player. A fantastic right-back. A better right-back than Alexander-Arnold. De- okay, sure, debatably, I believe so. But he's right. It's not an attractive type of play. However, Maradona still gets my nod. I'll start with some of his awards. 90 Mins gave him the greatest footballer of all time. Collier de los Sporte, best athlete in history. 1986 World Cup 1986 World Cup Golden Ball 1985 Serie Footballer of the Year FIFA World Cup All-Time Team FIFA Goal of the Century Argentine Sports Writers Sportsman of the Century Two-time South American Footballer of the Year Four-time Argentine Footballer Writers Footballer of the Year it's Two Scudetti One Copa Italia One Copa del Rey One UEFA Cup Do not do yourself the disservice of thinking of Maradona as a scorer of the hand of God with the off the pitch issues. Remember him for possibly the greatest goal ever scored against England. Remember him for taking Napoli from a nothing team to the strongest team in the strongest league in football. 
remember him as the god he is revered as in Argentina, a working class hero and philanthropist. Remember him as the genius he was, relying on pure talent and intuition in his diminutive frame. The case for Messi, despite possibly having a longer period of achievement, is the international record, which, whilst not explicitly Messi's fault, is something that Maradona holds over him. The case against Pele is the level of club play he faced in his career. However, as I said, you could convince me that 10 different players are the greatest of all time. Whilst I only covered five sports, I hope I gave you an insight into what it means to be the greatest. And invariably, none of the athletes mentions are guaranteed the career they have had if they were in any other era. Whilst this only validates the legacies and talent of athletes from the past. I've been Jamie, you've been amazing, and this has been What Was The Score, the Sports History Podcast. Thank you and have a nice day.